Thank you, Matt. Well, it, uh, it's great to be seen by you. Uh, I certainly wish that you were all in the room here and I could, uh, e- even better, I could shake your hand uh, and we could have a conversation within two feet from each other. Uh, but, but that's not what the Lord wills. So uh, it's great that we're able to gather at this time, even online. It's encouraging, even as I'm, as I'm standing here singing along to the music, uh, thinking that we're all singing the same words at the same time. We're all, we're all receiving the encouragement of the truth of God at the same time. We're all experiencing what we all experienced when, when uh, uh, Ben decided to ask us to sing a song or sing a word that uh, most of us are uncomfortable singing and we're trying to figure out, should I sing this? What do I do? Uh, it's encouraging to know I'm, I'm not alone in that. Uh, anyway, it's great to be with you. If, if you have your Bible, why don't you grab it and turn with me to Matthew chapter one. Matthew chapter one. We'll, we'll be there in, in just a minute. Uh, w- w- one of the marks, I think, of, of our culture today, I, I think maybe you see it too, is that we, there's a surprising unwillingness to evaluate the present in light of the, in light of the past. We have a bit of, of temporal arrogance that has us looking at things in the past and saying, yes, yes, they're totally important but they're just not, not quite as important as what's happening right now in, in my life. Even if it only happened a couple of years ago and we remember it and we, we remember how hard it was, we just don't think it was quite as important as what I'm going through right now. Uh, we, we just endured months of an election down in the United States and what we were hearing time and time and time again was this is the most important election in the history of the United States of America. The most important election. But about four years ago, uh, we were hearing the exact same thing. And four years before that, we were hearing the exact same thing. Every election has been the most important election in the history of the United States. And, and why is that? Well, because every election that's the most important one is the one that's happening right now, right? Because this one, this one is going to affect my life for the next four years. It's going to affect the news I'm going to be hearing. It's going to affect world events. It's going to affect all these things. This is the most important election because it, it's affecting me right now. It's, it's changing my life right now. And so e- even when something earth-shatteringly important happens, it, it really doesn't take us too long to start to brush it aside and see the things that are happening now as, as more important. Um, I, I think uh, Remembrance Day is a, is a good case study for us in, in, this, in our hearts, just, just because I, I, I'm worried that Remembrance Day has become a bit of a token day for us. And, and we know that we don't want it to be that. We know it shouldn't be that. We, we remember the sacrifices that were made for us so that we would enjoy the freedoms that, that we enjoy today, right? Uh, that, that's incredibly important. But, but for some reason, we, we don't live and dwell on those things thinking that the, the events of those two world wars are really dramatically affecting my life right now. We, we just don't practically live that way. Even though if something had gone even just slightly different, our, our lives right now would be dramatically different. But, but we just start to brush it aside. We start to see the things that are happening right now as more important. We're preoccupied with our struggles today. And so it, it, it forces us to, to look at those things in the past and think they're just not quite as important. Uh, we, and we, we do this as Christians too. Um, I, I, I think most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, are, are far more tempted to believe that what's happening right now is, is what's most important and not necessarily the events that happened 2,000 years ago, right? I, I've got bills to pay, right? I, I, maybe I had uh, an accident with my car and now I've got $2,000 of repairs that I did not budget for. My, my boss is ragging on me at work because there's a project with a tight timeline and I, I, I don't think 
we're going to finish. Or my spouse is going through a midlife crisis. I, my marriage is not what I thought it was. What's happening? Th- these things are all most important right now. E- even though if we were pressed on it, I think we would all, probably all say, yes, yes. The, the events 2,000 years ago, when Jesus Christ was born, he lived, he died, he rose again. Yes, those are more important than what's happening right now. But, but practically, we don't tend to live that way. Uh, that, this is why I think many of us will struggle to read our Bibles regularly. We're, we're just not convinced that, that the events of history really make a big difference for my life today. Yeah, okay, sure. If the Bible speaks to me about something practical, like, like money or about my anger or about my marriage, that certainly I'm, I'm willing to hear. But when it comes to just the history, it just doesn't seem all that important. It's, it's not changing my life right now. I've got bills to pay. I've got people to see. Uh, but, but here's the remarkable confession of the, of the Christian faith. Everything that we experience, everything is impacted by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Absolutely everything. Yes, e- even, even the bills you have to pay this month are affected by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How can I say that? If Jesus is who he says he is, the, very, the, the son of God himself, God himself, and he came as a human being to deliver us from our sin and to reconcile us to himself, that we would have a living relationship with him, then what I have to conclude is that the sovereign God who loves me that much is without a doubt appraised of my financial situation and is certainly capable of solving it with, with the snap of a finger. He, he could just solve my problems right now with, with a word. He's capable, but, but for some reason he's not. And so I, I have to actually conclude that God is doing something more important than what I'm imagining is the most important thing right now, which is my, my financial burden, my, the, the debt I owe. The bill I have to pay, it, I, I have to conclude that God is actually doing something more important, like, like shaping my character into the likeness of Christ for my joy and his glory. And the, the only reason I can come to that conclusion is because of the events that happened 2,000 years ago. He proved to us that he loves us. He proved to us that he is sovereign. So he's certainly capable to solve my problems now, but, but he's not. I, I reach that conclusion because of the history. H- history matters. But what makes this history of, of Jesus coming 2,000 years ago, what makes it even more dependably impactful for your life right now, de- dependably shaping of the decisions we make, what, what makes it that is the fact that even these events in history 2,000 years ago themselves have a history it's, it's not as though uh, Jesus uh, just came to, or God decided to send his son and uh, he just suddenly popped out of a womb without so much as a phone call to let us know he's on his way. He just, you know, I, this is the right time. I think I'm going to go. It, no, he, he'd let us know. Uh, even the birth of Jesus was an event that was built upon the history of the people of Israel. And, and even more particularly, it was, a, it was an event that was foretold to these people as they awaited the fulfillment of God's promises to them. They, they knew this was coming in, in some way. So, so this, is, this is the first message in a new series here at, at Tri-City called Christmas Foretold. And the goal is to work our way through the Christmas story, the story we all know so well, but we're going to work our way through it. And all the way, all the way uh, tracing the links and the connections and the fulfillment of God's prophecies in the Old Testament as they come true in, in the birth of Jesus, in the coming of Christ. 
And the, the goal is to understand that your life right now, at, at this very moment, is, is dramatically impacted by the coming of, of God. And particularly by the character of the God who sets history in motion. Right? If, if, what we, if what we see in history is a God who is bitter because his creation has gone to the pits, they're sinful, they're wicked. If, if what we see is a God who's bitter, my life is going to, going to go in a different direction than if what I see is a God who's compassionate and forgiving and loving and kind. I, it's, it's not hard to see how, how there's going to be two, two different paths there. If he's angry, if he's, if he's bitter, I'm going one way. If, if he's forgiving and loving and kind, well, maybe there's... Maybe it's, things are going a different way. And, and we see a, a glimpse of his character, a, a profoundly brilliant glimpse of his character and his power in the promises he makes, the prophecies that are made of the coming of Jesus. And, and we see it all the more clearly in the fulfillment of those promises in the coming of, of Jesus. So let, let me give you just, just a picture uh, so I can clarify uh, what, what I'm getting at, just so I can be clear here. Uh, the the you can tell a lot about somebody by, by the kind of promises they make you. But you can tell even more about somebody by the kind of promises they keep. So I, my, my brother John uh, and I are, are really close. We have been close our, our whole lives. Um, when, when we were young, we, we, we made this pact with each other that if we said the words, I promise, it was like an unbreakable vow. Uh, I knew that if I wanted John, I wanted to be sure that John was going to be somewhere or he was going to do something, I would ask him, John, do you promise and if he said the words, I promise, even if it was begrudgingly, even if it was hesitant, I knew he was going to do it. And the same was true of me. He, he knew that if I said the words, I promise, he knew I was going to actually do what I said I was going to do. And the, the reason that we knew this about each other is because we'd proven it, right? I, I had asked him to promise enough times and he had fulfilled his promise enough times that I came out the other side just totally trusting him. He, I, I knew that John was trustworthy because not only had he made a promise, he had kept his promise. In, in the same way, we're, we're going to learn a lot about the character of God by seeing the kind of promises he makes. They're gracious promises. They're compassionate promises. But we're going to learn even more by seeing him fulfill those promises. We're going to learn a lot about his character. So, so each week, we're, we're going to examine a, a different prophecy of the Old Testament that comes true in, in the birth uh, of Jesus Christ and the coming of the Son of God. So, uh, you, you, we already heard our, our two passages read out, but, but why don't you take your Bibles, if you're not there already, we're going to be in Matthew 1. Uh, I just want to walk us through this story to get a sense what, where this first prophecy shows up in the New Testament, uh, and, then, and then we're going to take it back uh, to where that prophecy uh, shows up for the first time in the Old Testament. Okay, so Matthew chapter 1, I'm going to start reading at verse 18, and I'll just kind of pick it apart as we go. Uh, and particularly, actually, I, what I want us to be seeing as we're reading this text is, is just how marvelously supernatural the story is. There's, there's no getting around the fact that God is doing something. Okay, we'll, we'll see that. Verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So we show up to see a... Uh, a an ordinary little girl, 12, 13, maybe 14 years old. She's, she's betrothed to Joseph. Um, and, and that was a pretty significant thing. To be betrothed in that day was, was almost as binding as marriage. So much so that if, if Joseph now were to die, Mary would be considered a widow. So, so Mary and Joseph are betrothed. They had about a year usually 
before they would actually get married. The year was, was so that Joseph could build a home. He would usually build it uh, uh, kind of on the side of his parents' house. And uh, the year was also given so that Mary could prove that she was going to be faithful, right? She wasn't going to go play around. And lo and behold, Mary's pregnant. But, but how is she pregnant? There's already a, a glimpse to the supernatural work happening here. That she's found with child from the Holy Spirit. So, so not even just an angel. God himself is at work here. God himself is doing something spectacular, something miraculous. Because someone who is a virgin doesn't just become pregnant apart from natural means. It, it, in our eyes, it's impossible. But in, in God's eyes, it, it's not. He's doing something here. Verse, verse 19. And her husband, Joseph... Being a, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to diver, divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So, so Joseph uh, finds out that Mary's pregnant, right? This, the, the year that she had to prove that she was faithful, well, she, she failed. Apparently she was unfaithful. So, so Joseph's trying to come up with a way to, to divorce her quietly. He doesn't want to put her to shame. And again, the word divorce comes up because it was such a binding thing to be betrothed. This was a big deal. So he's trying to figure out a way to do it quietly. And, and what happens? An angel shows up. An angel shows up to say to him, don't, don't be afraid to take Mary as your, as your wife because the, the child that has been conceived in her has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. So again, two, two markers that this is a supernatural thing. This is a miracle. Not only again are we told that the Holy Spirit is at work, God is, is doing something, but an angel shows up to tell Joseph that. It, angels don't just show up. They're, they show up to do something significant, to tell, tell something miraculous. So an angel has showed up to Joseph and says the baby's going to be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, uh, the, the name means Yahweh is salvation. We, we could just say God, God saves. That's, that's what his name means. God's going to do something marvelous here, both in, in the conception of Jesus, but also in, in his life. And then Matthew, Matthew helps us understand what, what's going on here uh, in verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to his son, and he called his name Jesus. So, so Matthew jumps into the middle of the story. He's telling us about Mary conceiving by the Holy Spirit, miracle, jumps in to say all this, is happening to fulfill the words of the prophet that the virgin would conceive and give birth to a son and you will call his name Emmanuel. So where does this come from? Why does this show up in the middle of the, the birth narrative of Jesus? Why does Matthew think it's so important? But most of us don't know our Old Testaments well enough to know that this is an immediate connection or that there is an immediate connection. Matthew's trying to make sure we notice it because it's important. The fact that God is fulfilling a prophecy is, is not a side story. This is the story. So where does this story start? Well, well take your Bible and, and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. I'm going to start at verse 1. 
Because I want us to get, get the whole context of where this prophecy shows up. And what we're going to see is that it's, uh, it's rather surprising. We're going to kind of come away being like, this doesn't seem like the right time for God to make this announcement. But, but he does. So I, Isaiah chapter 7, I'm going to start at, at verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, uh, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When, when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So what's going on there? I just read a whole bunch of names that I have no idea if I pronounced right, and it's a little confusing. Uh, what we're being told is that Ahaz is king of Judah. Ahaz was actually uh, one of the most wicked kings in the history of Israel. Uh, horribly wicked before the Lord. And he's the king of Judah. And Pekah uh, is, is the king of the northern, uh, northern Israel. So if, so if you remember, Solomon has these two sons, uh, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and they have a bit of a tussle over the kingdom, so much so that they end up dividing it in half. So you have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. So Ahaz uh, is called uh, the king of Judah. And Pekah is the king of Israel. But, but we're told also there's another kingdom at play here, and it's the kingdom of Syria. What's happening is that northern Israel and Syria have teamed up to attack Judah. And, and they've done a pretty good job so far, so much so that there's only one city left to defend, Jerusalem. And so Ahaz and all the people of, of Judah are shaking in their boots, right? That just as the wind shakes the trees of the forest, they are shaking in their boots, dead scared of what's about to happen. So that's what's happening. And then the, the Lord said to Isaiah, verse 3, Go out and meet Ahaz, you and, your, you and, and Shear Jashub, your son. Uh, and go and meet them at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. So, so he, God comes to Isaiah and says, go, I want you to go meet Ahaz. And he sends him to uh, this, this conduit of water that's on its way to the washer's, washer's field. Uh, the reason that, that God sends him there is because Ahaz is there. And the reason Ahaz is there is because what Ahaz is afraid of is that when, when Israel and Syria come up to attack the city, what they're going to do is lay siege to it. And what you would do when you laid siege to a city was that you would cut off all the resources from the outside world. Essentially, what you would plan to do is, is either starve them to death or, or make them so weak that they would end up coming out and surrendering anyway. And so one of, one of the best ways to do that would be to cut off a water supply. So Ahaz is out there trying to, trying to figure out how do we defend this water conduit? God sends Ahaz to come and have a conversation, or sorry, Isaiah to come and have a conversation with Ahaz. And this is what, what God says to, to tell him. Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Uh, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. So Isaiah comes to him and, and says, don't, don't be afraid. Be, be quiet, be careful. But then he says, he says uh, 
don't let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. That's language we, we doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us nowadays, but you could translate it as, as two smoldering pieces of firewood. Um, what, what Isaiah is saying, what God is saying through Isaiah to Ahaz is don't be afraid of these two kingdoms. You think they're a roaring fire. I'm telling you, they're like the coals at the bottom of a fire pit. They're about to go out. They don't have much steam left in them. They're about to die. Don't be afraid of them. And, and how can he say that? Why does he say that? Well, the Lord speaks through Isaiah to say this in verse seven. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. And it shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus. The, 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 uh, the main city, the capital city of Syria is Damascus. And the head of Damascus is Rezin. Rezin is, is the king in, in Syria. And within 65 years, Ephraim, or, or northern Israel, will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. The, the, the capital city of the northern, uh, the northern kingdom is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Romalia. If you're not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. So, so he says, don't, don't be afraid. Be careful. Be quiet. Don't, don't fear these other people. Why? Because their plans won't stand. And because I have declared that in 65 years, northern Israel is going to be so shattered, you won't even be able to call them a people. They're going to be that decimated. And so the Lord, again, speaks to, to Ahaz. He's just made this glorious, gloriously gracious announcement. They're going to they're gonna suffer and fall apart. You're going to be okay. And he follows it with this. He says, he, he spoke, to, spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. God, God makes this pronouncement that Israel is going to be shattered in 65 years. He says, Ahaz, I'm going to give you a sign. Let, whatever you ask, anything in the heavens, if you want to see a star, I'll make it happen. If you want something in the depths, you want to see a fish jump or something, I'll make it happen. I will prove to you that this will come true. And Ahaz, it, at first reading, we think, oh, this sounds, this sounds, he sounds like he's being honorable. Right? We're, we're commanded in Deuteronomy not to put the Lord to the test. So Ahaz says, I will not ask for a sign because I won't put the Lord to the test. This, he's not being honorable. He's rejecting the grace of God. God. God is saying, I want to prove this to you. I want to give you a sign so you can be sure. And he says, I don't want it. I don't care what your sign might be. I'd, I have no confidence that you really are God and I don't care about your sign. I'm not going to ask. So, so Isaiah responds uh, as is fitting. He says, and he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it not, or sorry, is it too little for you to weary men that you would weary God also? Right? Is it not enough for you to be a pain in the neck to these nations so much so they want to flatten you? Uh, you actually want to be a pain in the neck to, to God? Yeah, yeah, you certainly, okay, these nations, they can do a lot of damage. How much more can God do? You, you want to weary him too? And then surprisingly, where, where you think this is all of a sudden going to take the turn to a dramatic announcement of the, the destruction of Jerusalem, that he's going to say, okay, well, if you're going to be faithless, I'm just going to let them come and destroy you. He, where we would think he would say that, he does something totally different. He says this, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You didn't want one, I'm going to give you one anyway. Behold, the virgin shall conceive 
and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Hold on, that, that seems totally out of context. I, I thought we were talking about Ahaz, Syria, Israel, this war, and now God's making an announcement about the coming of Jesus that's going to happen 700 years later? This, something seems a little confusing here. So, so the context of this passage is, is surprising, right? The, the context of this prophecy is, is surprising. He reveals it to one of the most wicked kings in Israel's history. He reveals it in, as a response to this wicked king's faithlessness. He reveals it in the middle of, of a chaotic conflict, a war in Israel's history. And he reveals what seems to be a sign that what he said would happen 65 years from then, he's going to give that sign 700 years later. Something doesn't add up. Normally, if you want to prove to somebody that, you're, that something's going to happen in 65 years, you, you should probably give them the sign that it's going to happen before those 65 years are up. Otherwise, the sign seems a little pointless, doesn't it? So what's, so what's going on? Well, uh, a lot of scholars have looked at this text and, and tried to argue that there's actually a double meaning to this prophecy, that there, there is indeed a child to be born at this time in Ahaz's rule, um, and it would be miraculous in some way. It wouldn't be the same as the coming of the Messiah. It'd be miraculous, so they knew it was a sign, but it was also referring to the coming of Jesus. So, so there's two kids. It, it's fulfilled partially in this one child, and it's fulfilled completely in the coming of Christ. And there's some, there's some sound arguments for that. There, there's some great, great people who think that that's true. There was another child. And there's some, some great thinkers who, who conclude that actually it, it can't be about another child. It, the details seem too, too uh, precise. It must simply be about Jesus. It has to be only about him. Either way, in, in either case, the, the truth is, this is about Jesus. We, we, can, we can know that for sure. And how do we know that? Well, because of Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, 23. We just read it. All this... Mary conceiving a child, Virgin Mary, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. So, so I would love to dive into the, into the weeds on this. Um, I would love to just explore what it means so uh, importantly, why it's so important that, that we're told that it's a virgin who's going to conceive and give birth to God with us, right? That Because there's a, there's a uh, preservation of the, of the purity of God, that we, there was a reason we can call him sinless all his life because he's virgin born. I'd love to get into those weeds. What I want to do is I just want to make three observations for us. Uh, three observations about the fact that, that God makes this prophecy to wicked Ahaz in the middle of a conflict. And he's making this prophecy about something that'll happen 700 years ago. And then the fact that, that the prophecy is about a virgin conceiving and, and that the child being called Emmanuel, God with us. Okay, so I just want to make three observations for us from this. Uh, The the first is this. God is always concerned with the bigger picture. God is always concerned with the bigger picture. Even when we're convinced that that the immediate is more important. Right? Listen, life's not an easy endeavor. I I don't need to get behind a pulpit to tell you that. Uh, The things I was mentioning at the start of this message, um, having to pay for car repairs, having to... Uh, deal with a boss, a difficult boss at work. Th- those things barely scratch the surface of just how hard things get in our lives, right? Ahaz was in the middle of a war. L- literally, the only city left to defend was Jerusalem, his capital city. He was shaking in his boots. At that moment, I'm sure what he was thinking was, this is the most important moment right now. 
I just got to survive the night. I got to get through this so I can just live another day. This is what's most important. And in the middle of that, God's word to him, although he had just said, yes, Israel's plans won't stand, it'll be shattered. In the middle of it all, he decides to make a statement about something that's going to happen 700 years in the future. What, what's going, he's not, he's dealing with the moment, but he's also thinking about something and planning something far into the future. Why? Y yes, they, they needed to be saved from their opponents. God knew that. But God sees the whole picture. He, he sees the bigger picture. They needed to be saved from their sins. Right, this, this is simple triage, right? You, you go into the ER and the doctor is going to deal with the more grievous wound before he deals with the broken finger or the, the sliver up your thumb, right? He, he's going to deal with the wound that might be life-threatening. So, so what you have here is you have sin that will lead to eternal damnation, spiritual death. You have northern Israel and you have Syria that could lead to physical death and pain. It's not hard to do the triage. What, what's more important here? The sin. God dealing with those other kingdoms certainly would be gracious and it would be helpful to Ahaz. In the end, what's going to be more helpful, what's more important in God's eyes is dealing with the sin of his people. Uh, th th this is actually a really important thing for us to understand about God's work in our lives even right now. Uh, we're tempted to think that when we put our faith in God, all, all of a sudden, everything should kind of start to take a turn for the better, right? Uh, my financial situation should improve. My physical health should improve. The, things should just take a turn for the better. Because if God is sovereign and God is good and he's loving, doesn't it make sense that he would want to help me out in those ways? I mean, if he's for me, wh why wouldn't he help me in those ways? But, but what we need to remember is the bigger picture, <laughs> Uh, what, what's the triage here, right? I, say I, I have a financial burden that could, could cost me uh, missing a bill and potentially then that leads to a bad credit score and, and potentially even further, further, further down the road it, it could mean the loss of property. That sounds, that sounds terrible. That, it, that's a situation. So there's that, but then there's also right next to it, potentially in God's perspective, our naturally sinful thinking that has us conclude that my life can never be totally satisfying unless I have material things. Right? That all the while, the reason I'm fearful for my financial situation is because I'm afraid that my life is not going to be joyful. I'm going to lose every bit of happiness because I've lost these things. But if, if God simply provided all of our material needs every time we needed them, maybe none of us would be shaken up to recognize that actually we're we think that if I lost everything, my life would be not satisfying. That, that Jesus isn't enough to satisfy me in the worst of situations. Just, just as, a, as a personal illustration, when, when I uh, sit down to write a sermon, often I will, I will just struggle and struggle to get words on the page. And I'm just trying to wrestle out an outline and something and trying to make sense of the text and all these things. And I'm just working and working and working. And finally, I just, I just break and I go to the Lord and I say, Lord, is this not important? Is it not important that your, your people receive the word on Sunday that, that's rich and encouraging and challenging and faithful to the text? Is that not important? So, so why won't you help me? And eventually what I end up realizing is that I, as I'm praying to him, I, I've discovered that what was happening was I was just trying to write a sermon in my own strength. I was trying to use my own in intellect, my own ability, and 
God holding me back from being able to do it was his way of, of reminding me, Joshua, you need me. It's my word, not yours. And so, so God sees the two things. He sees, yes, there's, it's sermon needs to get preached on Sunday and there's something going on in Joshua's heart. I'm going to deal with that on the way to a sermon on Sunday. So, so what, what are those things for us? What, what are the things that we're, we're waiting for the Lord to answer our prayer? We're waiting for him to solve our, our problem because we think that he should, but, but, but we're missing the bigger picture because we're so occupied on this small thing. We're missing the fact that maybe, just maybe, God is using this struggle to, to complete the work that he actually intends to complete in you, which is the shaping of your character into the likeness of Christ for your joy and his glory. God's always concerned with the bigger picture. Second observation. God is the proactive author of history, not a reactive participant in history. It, it is really, really tempting. Uh, in a world that's so stained by sin and trial and struggle, it is, it is tempting um, to think that, that God is just taking whatever comes his way and just trying to make the best out of it. He's trying to make the best out of a bad situation. Uh, the problem with that kind of thinking is that it actually robs God of his sovereignty. And, and, and in the end, it actually robs us in so many ways of our joy, of our Christian hope, of our confidence. Um, right? We, we, we know that God works out all things for our good. Right? So in so much as maybe things start poorly, but he's going to find a way to make it work out okay. But, but really, it's, it's also that God works in all things for our good. It, not only does he see it happening and then he makes the end good, he actually started the whole process to begin with. So why am I making this, why am I making this point here to relate to the virgin birth and this prophecy? Well, uh, I think the virgin birth is perhaps one of the most profound displays of God's sovereign ability to step in and orchestrate uh, his plans in history. Right? Again, there's some who would say that God... Uh, is just working with whatever we give him, with whatever comes his way. He's just trying to bend things and twist things and move things so that eventually they end up kind of roughly in the way that he wanted to. And so he's just dealing with whatever's coming to him, but he's going to kind of make it turn out okay. But in the virgin birth, uh, what we don't see is God rolling with the punches. He's the one throwing the punch. Right? He, he had planned to do this 700 years before when he spoke through the prophet Isaiah. He had planned to do this all the way back at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3 when he's laying out the curses on mankind for their sin. In the middle of the curse on the woman, he, he throws this little nugget of grace in there and he says, and, and your seed, your, your offspring is actually going to crush the head of the serpent. That, that, that's happening right here. That's happening in the coming of Jesus. He's not reacting to history as just another one of the players in the drama. He's, he's ordaining it. He's the author of it. Uh, and, and this is, in so many ways, like I said, the foundation, the grounds for our Christian hope, our Christian peace, our courage in the face of, of trials and difficult circumstances. If God is not simply trying to make the best out of a bad situation, but is in fact the ordainer of the situation, then I should have all the confidence in the world that God is using my sufferings and my struggles for my good, his glory, right? So much so that we should be able to respond to James in James chapter one, when he says, count it all joy 
when you find yourself suffering all kinds of trials, when you face all kinds of trials in the world. Count it joy. How can I count it joy? Well, well let, me, let me give you an illustration. I, uh, uh, a couple friends of mine are, are just about to come up on their one-year anniversary. They got married just about a year ago. And uh, when they were dating, things, things started to move really quick. When they started dating, things were getting along really well. They were already having some pretty serious conversations about getting engaged. Uh, and so my buddy decides to start, you know, concocting this plan of how he was going to propose to her. And part of his plan was to start uh, dropping not so hidden hints uh, that he thought that maybe it would be wise for them to wait a little bit. Um, maybe let's slow things down. And so he's having all this in conversation and she was starting to feel just a little frustrated because she thought that things were going so good. Why is he not wanting to get married? What's, what's he getting cold feet for? I thought things were going so well. Uh, so he, she's getting frustrated. All the while, he's got this plan. He takes her on this elaborate date night uh, and, and in the middle of the day, uh, in, this, in this beautiful location, he, he pops the question and whoa, filled with joy. Great day. Uh, in the middle of the plan, sh- she's a little upset. She doesn't think things are going the way they should go. All the while, those on the outside who, who knew what was happening are looking at the whole thing. And even though they're seeing her frustration, they're still filled with joy because they know what's coming at the end of it. They know there's joy at the end of the story. And so in, this, in, in the same way, in, in a similar way, that's how, how we should view the sufferings and trials of our own lives, right? That, that in the middle of it and at the start of it, we begin to think, I, I, I thought things were supposed to go a different way. This isn't, this isn't how things were supposed to go. But in the end... God works it all for our good and, his, and our joy and his glory. So what we should be able to do is, is if we know that's true, if we know God's sovereign, if we've seen him prove it time and time again, if we know this, then what we should be able to do is in the middle and at the start of our sufferings, be able to say, I know that on the other end of this is my joy and so I'm going to have joy right now. God is doing a marvelous work in me, through me. Israel went through all kinds of of trials, struggles, wars, sufferings. All the while, God already had his plans to send the Messiah. Uh, Last observation. So so first, God's always concerned with the bigger picture. Secondly, he's the proactive author of history, not, not a reactive participant. Lastly, God's passion for his people is unstoppable. God's passion for his people is unstoppable. The news of the virgin birth is the news of of Emmanuel, God with us, God himself taking on human flesh for the expressed purpose of revealing himself to us and in his life, death, and resurrection, reconciling us to himself. But, But here's the kicker. Here's the wonderful kicker. God in all of his perfection had every faculty of brilliance at his disposal in coming up with this plan. And in this brilliance, he saw that the plan which poured the fullest cup of blessing into our lives was the very same plan that would take him humiliated, whipped, whipped, beaten, human, that would take him to a wooden cross to suffer his own wrath poured out on himself so that it wouldn't get poured out on us. God's passion his love for his people is unstoppable. There, there is no bounds to it. He did whatever it took to make us his own, to unite himself with us in a covenant that's so brilliantly displayed in marriage, right? We, we are his bride. And so he, he pledges himself to us that he will never leave us, never, never forsake us. He will forever strive to see our joy complete. He will not stop at anything to lavish us with every blessing at his disposal. 
Far, far too often, I hear people uh, say that I'm, I'm just not convinced that God loves me. I, m- maybe you've, you've said that or you've thought that. How, how could he love me? Well, we're, we're asking the wrong question. Uh, when we're talking about a sovereign, almighty God, how is a really silly question, right? How is a question of, of ability or of scope? How could he love me? Well, he can. He's sovereign. He's God. He's infinite in his love. He's infinite in his compassion. He can. It's a silly question to ask how of God. The real question is this, does he love me? And for the answer to that question, I point you to an event in history 2,000 years ago. When God took on human flesh, he lived, he died, he rose again for our sake. Let's stop living as though the events of history are less important than what's going on right now. My bills, my frustrations, they're more important, right? Let's stop living that way. The most important thing has already happened. And what's marvelously wonderful about that is that it's, a, it's an event filled with love and grace that washes its way into every part of our lives, to the bills I pay, to the friends I have, to the calls I make, everything. Christmas is a gloriously wonderful thing. And the coming of Jesus, conceived in a virgin, is a miracle for us to all enjoy. Why don't we pray together? God, we're so thankful for your word. We, we are thankful for the fact that we can look back and see the coming of Jesus. Um, and then we can look even further back and we can see that you promised it. This, this wasn't an accident. It wasn't just that, that you were waiting for the right moment and you saw that things were lining up and decided to step in. No, you, you had it all planned. You, you orchestrated every event so that Jesus would come as he did and suffer as he did so that we might know you and we could speak to you even now and you would hear us as your sons and daughters. And God, we just, we just wanna be filled with joy at that truth. Fill us, fill us with the joy of Christmas. Fill us with the hope and peace that comes with knowing you are sovereign, you are good and all things work for our good because you are good. God, we love you. Uh, we long to love you more. So would you, would you receive our praises as we sing again? Um, and would you walk with us as we go into our week? And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.